Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. Today's podcast is brought to you by Vodafone Business. Now, if you like us here in My Wall Street, you know that running a business is hard. There are countless things to think about and many often simply get ignored or completely forgotten about. Well, that's where Vodafone Business can help. They've crafted a suite of tools and supports to boost your business's operations. And the best part is it's free for everyone. From cybersecurity to harnessing the power of AI, building a website and improving how your teams work remotely, Vodafone Business will help you address the often overlooked but crucial elements for your business's success. To get started today, check out our one-to-one VHub digital support and advice service. You'll find everything you need right there. Find the link in our show notes or simply Google Vodafone VHub for more details. Now, to the show. We've been lucky enough to have some great guests on Stock Club in 2023, so here is a look at some of the best at bits. First up, we have the CEO of Truemark Investments, Michael Lucas. Truemark is the issuer of a number of ETFs, including the True Shares Technology, AI, and Deep Learning ETF. And Michael came on to discuss his AI investment strategy. If you're interested in the full show, this was episode 164, published on the 30th of June. You know, it didn't happen until really this year where we saw legitimate investment theses jump into the AI and deep learning game. The true understanding of what AI and deep learning is going to mean to society and what it's going to mean to the investment world. And you know, our our stance on this has not wavered one iota since we launched the fund in 2020, which is there are certain building blocks of AI and deep learning that are investable and will always be in demand. Um, And then there are sophisticated users of AI and deep learning. And those sophisticated users of AI and deep learning are the ones that we want exposure to because they're companies that are solving a pain point in the marketplace and they are uh, creating their own hyper growth cycles because of that. And, and so when we invest in AI, you know, I'd like to say that, you know, the last few years have really allowed us to hone our thesis on this, but our thesis hasn't changed because it's been that way since day one. And the thesis simply is AI and deep learning is going to mean something to almost every industry segment in the global economy. And, you know, that is just continuing to prove true. Um, you know, if, if you look at AI and what it means to the average investor, you get a bit of a feeling of what happened with blockchain uh, mm. in the early days, right? Where investors, they know they want exposure to it. They believe the hype. They just don't know how to do it. So they go after something that resembles uh, AI exposure when the truth is AI and it's not it's not investable asset class. You're investing in a business model that's wrapped around a particular application of AI, and so that's really where we focus our attention. And um, when we kick off our fundamental research process, we will start um, with companies. We'll start following companies that are pre-IPO, you know, maybe even in their sort of A, B, or C round of, of venture capital or private equity, as it would be. And we'll use a qualitative assessment uh, to compare them to peers in their segment. And by segment, I mean what industry they are um, creating a marketplace in and then you know, what pain point their technology is meant to solve and then who would their peers and or competition be in that, in that, that particular pain point. So we start to follow them then. We won't buy them until they're public. 
because what you have is once they file for their IPO, then you have access to your, your quantitative analysis as well uh, because you get numbers on the company. Up to that point, you're really dealing on uh, customer adoption and uh, you know, acceptance around the, the AI and technology community and, and sort of qualitative factors like that. Um, so once they get to post-IPO, then we'll look at the top two or three names in a segment that we think has a deep uh, bench in terms of demand. And we will own maybe one of them. We might own two or three of them. And, you know, at that point, uh, what we're looking for is we're looking to identify the company that might eventually be the category killer and eventually become the household name for that segment. And so when you see that situation, we call it the hyper growth cycle, and you will see uh, fundamental acceleration in the business model of that company. And eventually you'll see consolidation in that segment and one winning horse start to separate from the pack. And when that happens, we consolidate into it. So there are two real uh, you know, points to grab onto when it comes to our investment style. The first point is uh, we use fundamental analysis. We like to uh, pursue companies that are entering their hyper growth cycle. And the second is we like to concentrate uh, when those companies assert themselves. Next up is the Chief Investment Officer at BBAE, James Early. James' reputation is a formidable one, having previously worked as the CEO of MarketWise's China subsidiary, as well as the Director of Research and Analysis at The Motley Fool. Here he is chatting to Emmett about whether Warren Buffett's investing style could be recreated in today's market conditions. For the full episode, look up episode 179, published on October 12th. I, I've been to Berkshire Hathaway, not not a long, long time, but since 2018, I've, I've gone to every meeting and the secret is out, right? I mean, the cat's out of the bag. Everybody knows how well Buffett has done uh, phenomenal returns in that company. And, and he's uh, rightfully, rightfully just created this, this legion of, of imitators and people following mm -hmm. him. And now with, with AI, with, with tech, I mean, even, even analysts, at, when I was still at Motley Fool, you just see how much faster they are with the technology, at least than I was. And I'm, I'm just Gen X. I'm not that old yet. But, uh, you know, with AI now, they're going to be able to, to implement Buffett-esque strategies super quickly. So this idea of, of finding these diamonds in the rough, I mean, Ben Graham had net nets, right? And, and, and Buffett you know, couldn't find any more of those. So he kind of went to these high quality long-term businesses. I think, I, I think overall, the, 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 the idea of patience will never go out of style. Like that quote mm. I gave earlier, that stat about 2021, having more money flowing into the market than in the prior 19 years, that still shows a lot. So I, I feel like, even though there are a lot of these Buffett uh, wannabes that, that probably jump in, like if you find some really good small company run by a nice management team. And by the way, people are, are catering to that audience, too, just like we mentioned how people cater to dividend investors and try to put on a bit of a show, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. People do the same thing to the Warren Buffett crowd. Sometimes you'll see these financial statements presented in kind of a Buffetty way or the company comes across in this, you know, Oh shucks, you know, avuncular sort of uh, uh, fashion because they know people out there are are trying to to invest in that Buffett style, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I would say that's a good thing. He's really done a tremendous uh, uh, service to global capitalism, to global in investing overall. So it's it's good for people to copy Buffett, but I, I don't think you're going to be able to find as many 
just you know turn over the stone and here's a great company anymore. Mm. Uh, that's yeah. that's going to be harder. So yeah, nothing wrong with index investing, and then people are just going to have fewer pick pick your individual stocks uh, more carefully. At least that's what mm. I'm doing. Our next clip contains Ireland's top electric vehicle expert, Derek Riley. Derek Riley is the founder of EV Review Ireland and the general manager of Nevo. Here he is chatting with Emmett about the impact global governments are having on the EV industry. For the full episode, look up number 159, published on May 26th. Yeah, definitely governments around the world took the, took the, a couple of years ago, said we need to incentivize the adoption of electric vehicles. And so mm. there was a off the sticker price or it could be a tax rebate, et cetera. Um, and that has worked. And now because we've gone past that early adopter stage and got into the mass market stage, government said, OK, do you know what? And very much like the Irish government are doing, they're saying we're not going to subsidize as much and it will peter out over time. What we're going to do is funnel that into actually um public charging infrastructure and supporting the rollout of that grid upgrade or the installation of charging hubs on these motorway routes or in these urban environments where sometimes people might live in an apartment or with no off-street parking and they need to slow charge overnight or fast charge on a journey. And so governments are making that shift. So there's that kind of a change in policy. So the pool of funds are still there, but where the government is spending it is slightly different. And then you look at the likes of the North American uh, Inflation Reduction Act and say, Saying, do you know what? We're only going to subsidize vehicles that are made in North America with North American batteries or the majority of the battery comes from North America or one of those countries that we are in partnership with, i.e. Canada. And so now manufacturers, global manufacturers are saying, oh, we can't make our car in South Korea and then ship it to the North, North America or we can't make our battery in China and ship it to North America we need to set up a factory or a uh, partnership in that country then that will increase that will uh, help with jobs but also might reduce the sticker price so consumers in markets like that such as north america now are looking at a european made vehicle that won't get the full seven and a half thousand uh, rebate versus a north american made battery and vehicle and i'll get that seven and a half thousand off that sticker price be that back in tax credits or be that off just straight off the price from, on the lot. And so, yeah, you definitely need to understand. And governments can, like the United Kingdom, overnight without warning, took that grant away from plug-in hybrids, reduced the grant. So there was no, you need to go and buy this if you want to get this by this date. Um, it's happened in Ireland where they've dropped it by 1,500 euros uh, by the 1st of July this year. Over three years, it's a tenner a week. It's really not going to make any difference to the sales of electric vehicles. I think that the, the, the flywheel is starting to build up momentum and that people are buying them, whether there is a grant or not. It wasn't nice yeah. to get it. And there's always the query of, does somebody who buys a Tesla or an electric vehicle need the help? Potentially not. Quick reminder, folks, from our friends at Vodafone Business, sponsors of Stock Club, check out their free one-to-one digital support and advice service today discuss a range of topics from social media tips, cybersecurity, and building a website for your business. Search Vodafone VHub or click on the link in the show notes for today's episode. In this next highlight, we have Brian Feroldi. Brian is the author of Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? and writes the weekly newsletter Long-Term Mindset. He has dedicated his life to financial education and is a must-follow on Twitter. Here he is explaining his investing checklist he uses to vet stocks before adding them to his portfolio. For the full interview, check out episode 178, published on October 5th. Uh, So I've been an active stock picker for almost 20 years now. And after several years of doing it very unsuccessfully, I joined uh, The the Motley Fool and my education just uh, exploded. 
uh, uh, from there. And I became far more interested in stock picking than I was prior uh, to that. Now, if you join any stock picking service out there, very quickly, uh, you start to learn that there are far more ideas for your money than there are actual good places that you should uh, put your money. And at the time, I felt like I was sipping from like a fire hose. Like the number of recommendations and stocks that I should buy was far higher than my capacity to actually buy them. And what I was trying to do at the time was keep everything in my head where I was like, oh, I really like this company's gross margin and I like their leadership position, but I like that this company is growing faster and it's profitable, but I like that this company this company has a founder-led management team um, and I'm worried about that this company has customer concentration issues. Finally, I got smart enough to say to myself, maybe I should write this down and actually create <laughs> a system uh, for myself for picking uh, investments. So I've now done this. I, I've now iterated uh, on this checklist that you're, you're speaking of multiple times. I'm currently on version three uh, uh, of it, and it's more battle tested than it's been um, in, in the past. Uh, but broadly speaking, uh, I have a set of criteria that best match what I personally am looking for in an investment. And whenever I come across a new stock idea or a new business, I take that company through my investing checklist. And I ask myself things like, what do the financial statements look like, right? I want to see a strong balance sheet, a high gross margin, high returns on capital, free cash flow, earnings and earnings per share growth. Uh, I ask, what's the competitive advantage uh, of this company? What's the moat? Does it have a network effect moat, a switching cost moat, uh, a cost advantage moat, an intangible moat, counter positioning? And, and importantly, what's the direction uh, of that moat? I ask myself, what's the long-term growth potential uh, of, of this company? Is it growing organically or via acquisition? Uh, is it a top dog and first mover in its industry? Uh, does it have operating leverage in the business? Does it have demonstrated signs of optionality? Um, et cetera, et cetera. So my list is, uh, is pretty long. Um, is pretty long. And as I go down and fill it in, I get an idea for how high, how high of a match is this investment for what I personally uh, am looking for. Now, after that's done, I then take it through my anti-checklist or something that I call the gauntlet, which is basically a list of criteria that turn me off uh, as an investor. So for me, that's things like accounting irregularities. If you have accounting irregularities, you're dead to me. I'm not interested in you, right? If I can't trust the numbers, uh, I'm not going to make an investment in the business. Uh, I don't like any customer uh, concentration or any supplier concentration. I don't like single points of failure uh, in, in businesses. Uh, I don't like it when a company is in an industry that's being disrupted. I don't like it when it, it depends on outside market prices for success, such as interest rates or oil prices. Uh, I don't like it when a company has high stock-based compensation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So with my checklist, I can now take any company I've never come across, run it through my checklist in the matter of about an hour or so. And at the end of that process, I get a very clear idea for, is this company a match for what I'm looking for or is it not? And then I just research further the ones that are best match and wait until I think they're trading at attractive prices and add them to my portfolio. Next up, we have Grant Sabatier. Grant is the founder of Millennium Money and the author of the international bestseller, Financial Freedom, A Proven Path to All the Money You Will Ever Need. He has documented his own personal finance success story and used it to facilitate others to achieve financial freedom, reach their money goals, and retire early if they so choose. Here he is explaining what people get wrong when they think of retirement. Grant's interview was episode 183 and was published on November 9th. 
it's kind of a generational question. And so, you know, boomers or, you know, people who let's say are over the age of 60, you know, they have always viewed, you know, retirement as kind of this, you know, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You know, if they work hard, then they'll finally have the freedom to do the things that they want to do. The problem with that is, you know, who we are as humans, you know, we, we tend to change a lot faster than we uh, admit to ourselves. And so the things that you, you know, the dreams that you set when you're 30, hey, I want to go, you know, walk the Great Wall of China, or I want to go spend, you know, a month in India, you know, these, these, these sort of big dreams, very high likelihood that, you know, maybe in 20 or 30 years, when you retire, you know, you know, God willing, you have the health and, and the financial means to be able to do those things. But what I find is a lot of people just don't have those dreams anymore. You know, the dreams just kind of over time, they, uh, they, they, they fatigue, they denature, they drop away. And or, so I think or maybe the, they, they kind of, they downgrade because people realize that their idea of retirement and the money needed for those dreams maybe isn't feasible as well. Yeah. I think, I think just, yeah, momentum shifts. And so what happens, you know, I think it's this big kind of farce that, that boomers were sold on. That's just, you know, save a little bit of money for the rest of your life and then you'll be able to do whatever you want. And, and the cool thing is, especially, you know, millennials and, and now Gen Z, you know, just we're, we're not willing to to accept that trade off for face value because we're seeing our parents, you know, still having to work and not have enough money. We're seeing, you know, it's like it's like if, you know, all these people followed this advice, you know, for 30 years and then they didn't end up where they wanted to end up. So then you have to take a really hard look at that advice and be like, OK, you know, all that stuff that you all were reading about and following and doing. You know, it, is, is it really the right way to go about it? Uh, and so I think that's been the big shift where, you know, especially people, you know, my age and our age, you know, retirement um, can still be, you know, a pot of gold at the end of the, the tunnel. But we just don't want to wait 30 years for it. You know, we're, we're impatient and we're complacent. And so that's really cool. Uh, unfortunately, you know, there's some people, you know, even some of my best friends who've read my book and who know me. And who can, you know, sit and have a beer with me, you know, or watch a soccer game with me and ask me any question on earth, still think it's not possible to reach financial independence at a young age. I mean, these are my good friends. They see the life that I'm living. They've read my book. They ask me questions and they still can't, you know, can't believe it. And I, and I think th there's an element of that in, in, in everybody where, um, and that's the challenging thing with the work that I do, because you can show people what you've done show them how to do it and, and, and do everything. But if they, if they don't believe in themselves, you know, that it's possible or they don't want it, uh, then, then, you know, they're, they're just going to stay in their same mindset and kind of accept the, the status quo existence. So I think that's the biggest challenge is the idea of retiring early, which doesn't mean you're not going to work for the rest of your life. It just means you have the option to work on whatever you want. And I think a lot of people, you know, we go through phases in our lives where, we, we might want to work really hard on a project or we might be interested in something and then we might want to move on, you know, to something else. Like I'm just like a lot of people, you know, I'm, I, I get you know bored very easily. And so I'm happy to work on something for a year or two uh, or maybe even five years, but then I want to do something else. And so I think there there's increasingly, especially younger people, it's a lot easier for them to, to see and understand that they have more options, a lot more options than their parents had and that they don't even have to think about retirement as a destination, it's just like life is almost like a, a series of mini retirements or just phases or 
you know, adaptations, but ultimately you still have to find a way to make and save money and then use your freedom very, uh, you know, intelligently, uh, so, so that you can, you know, maximize, you know, your happiness and, and, and the experience that you're, you're, you're getting from it. So I think the idea of retirement, you know, still exists. I think, you know, anything that the media writes about to get clicks, you know, will, will stick around for a while. But I think increasingly people are just skeptical about it. And some people are skeptical and they're like, I'm never going to have enough money to retire. So I'm not going to save anything. And there's those people, you know, or there's the people who's just like, you know, everything, you know, sucks and we can't make money. And, you know, we're the millennials, we're Gen Z and we have more student loan debt than anyone ever. And then the, you know, the dominant narrative becomes everyone's super in debt. So they're never going to be able to retire. So people just accept that existence. Or there's an increasing minority of people that are like, oh, okay. You know, we have the internet. We have all these different ways to make money. There's a lot of people making money in a lot of different ways. I'm going to spend instead of my time just kind of wallowing, you know, or watching Netflix or playing video games. And I'm going to figure this thing out because there's never been more opportunities. And I believe you know, that I can, you know, acquire and make more money than, than, than I thought I could. And, you know, I'm, I'm really in control of my life. And so I think there's those three buckets of people. And thankfully, you know, because people are writing and sharing about this, you know, more and more people are believing that this is possible and then learning themselves as they, as they get on the path that it actually is possible. And then, you know, once, once someone starts believing that, that's all they need, you know, everything else takes care of itself. Here we have Chris Mayer. Our regular listeners will know all about Chris. He's appeared on the pod a few times now to discuss his unique take on the market. Best-selling author with his book 100 Baggers and Where to Find Them, as well as the portfolio manager Woodlock House Family Capital. In this clip, Chris discusses the metrics he looks at in his unending quest to unearth the next 100 bagger. The interview with Chris is episode 184 and was published on November 9th. At first glance, um, high returns somehow. Uh, high returns on capital. So, you know, return on equity is an easy one to think about. And that measure has lots of flaws. You know, companies can be very leveraged and can show high returns on equity or they can, if, it, if their company has done a lot of buybacks and so the accounting equity is small, the ROE can be inflated. But some, so that's why I say ROE or return on invested capital or return on capital employed. There are a number of these measures. Just go to, if I find one that's just consistently just cranking out these high, high returns, um, you know, that's something that gets me gets me excited, interested to take a deeper look. You know, higher mm-hmm. margins is kind of preferred, but not necessary. I mean, there there are companies that have lower margins, but still do it like grocery stores or like a Walmart. It's been a great business um, mm-hmm. and a lot of growth. You know, we see that because we talked about you need 20, 20 percent a year for 20, 25 years to get there. So mm-hmm. um, if you see sustained growth, that, that's these are the kind of things that would really get my attention and make me take another look. So return on invested capital, this is for our listeners' purposes, because I, honestly, I forget this stuff so quick. But for our listeners' purposes, return on invested capital measures how much profit a company generates from its total capital, whereas return on equity measures how much profit a company generates from its shareholders' equity. Now, logically, it feels to me that investors should pay closer attention to return on invested capital because it takes account of all the resources the business has put into making money. But it feels to me, or it's not even feels, in, in your book and in a lot of other investors' books, um, return on equity is preferred over 
or OIC. Can you explain why, Chris, or, or is, it, is one just a proxy for the other? Well, I think people like to talk about ROE because it's simpler. I mean, it's mm. available on all all the financial websites. That, you know, you can just it's just there and it's easy number. Um, and it depends. Yeah. I mean, it it can be a decent proxy for a company that's not levered. Um, you know, there's some other things where it might be close, but um, I would I would be careful just looking at ROE. Uh, you know, yeah. that's, with all these numbers, you, there's you know a lot of people they want something they can just kind of check off. So they want to know there are certain numbers that you hit and then you're good. But investing really doesn't work that way. I mean, there's all these companies are different and there's unique things about certain industries. So you really can't just punch in a number. I mean, that was another thing that definitely I learned doing the 100-bagger study myself. Was I kind of hoped that there might be like a little financial little template of four or five numbers that I could say, oh, well, these are the ones that are kind of good predictors. But it really didn't work out that way. I mean, there's so many ways up the mountain. I mean, you know, even if you say you want a company that has high margins, I mean, that's not necessarily true. Companies with low margins have have become hundred baggers. Um, even the growth number, we want a lot of growth, of course, but there are also companies that achieve that hundred bagger status because they were such aggressive purchasers of their own stock and started off at such a low multiple. I mean, mm. it's just like if you think of hundred baggers, a peak of a mountain. There's a lot of paths. Last but certainly not least, and probably my favorite interview of the year, is our friend Bill Mann. Bill is the director of small cap research at The Motley Fool. He also hosts The Motley Fool Morning Show, has frequently appeared on CNBC, Bloomberg, Fox, CNN, BBC, CBS, and basically any other business program with an acronym. Such as Bill's expertise in corporate governance, he was asked by a U.S. Senate committee to testify as an expert witness at a hearing regarding the collapse of Enron. In this clip, he discusses his take on story stocks, Dropping the ball with Testa, and as we like to do here on Stock Club, he closes out the show with an elevator pitch of sorts. So Bill's interview, if you want to go back and listen to it, is episode 180 and was published on October 19th. So I, let me say at the top that my my long-term track record at being wrong about story stocks is almost unbroken. <laughs> <laughs> Like I interviewed Elon Musk in these offices in 2012 and I bought Tesla and it doubled in 2013. I was like, well, that's about as good as it's going to get. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> there have been very brief periods of time in the intervening decade in which I felt smart, but they have not been very long. Um, so I think one of the most important things, you know, to to understand about about tech stocks, as far as I evaluate them, now that I've you know kind of crapped all over my capacity to do so, is um, is I think so many people get wrapped up in looking for companies with super high growth rates, and they forget that the the incredibly successful companies are the ones that grow for such a long period of time that if you were to go into day one of your MBA program and and produce you know a, a cash you know a uh, you know a a, um, a discounted cash flow for these companies the the professor would fail you yeah. you know so like that's the magic of Apple it's not that it's grown forty percent a year it's that it's grown thirteen percent for 30 years in a row. Mm -hmm. And right. brought back That's half right. a trillion worth of stock as well. But exactly. No, exactly right. So so when you think about it, you know, when you when when you think about a discounted cash flow statement, you've got like the five years that you can predict or the 10 years that you can predict. And what you put on the end is that, you know, is is the terminal growth rate. 
what kinds of companies, and this is not easy, right? Uh, what kinds of companies are going to break that terminal growth rate? And mm -hmm. to me, uh, in, in tech, what you have to look for are unbounded companies that have something that, that I call the capacity to suffer, that if, if they disappeared would be screamingly pay, painful for any, for the companies that they supply. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are the, the, those are it. So I am not particularly interested in companies that are growing at 70% and have really light capital models, because what I see in a company like that is a company that can be disrupted really easily because they're in the process of disrupting, disrupting something else. And if it doesn't, if it didn't make much, take much capital to create this company, it's not going to take that much capital to create the one that disrupts it. Mm, mm. So if you think about an Apple, for example, and hey, let's, you know, let, let, let's, let, let's get on a podcast and talk about how smart we are for, for saying nice things about Apple. Apple is a capital intensive business. Amazon is a capital intensive business. So, so someone who is in a garage right now trying to think of what big company they, they can disrupt, these two are non-starters, right? So I actually look for, you know, for companies that tend to have, I guess what you would call lower, less sexy economics uh, than, you know, than where a lot of people might immediately focus on. Mm -hmm. Which I suppose brings it brings me back to the stock you mentioned at the top of the cast was which is Chipotle, which you I think honed in on 15, 16 years ago, uh, which is when I invested. Um what do you see anything out there today that reminds you of Chipotle way back in 2006? That it just has it resonates. You go, you know what? I I see these traits. I I remember it was Steve Ells, passionate founding, mm. qualified chef who was very kind of authentic on the mic and a, a customer promise that we could all connect with. Is there anything out there that you go, yeah, that kind of feels like that? Well, there, there there are a few, and just to go straight back to to Sweden, you know, one of which is a company called Evolution Gaming, which is in the process, which has, uh, and they don't grow very quickly, but they well, actually they are they actually are growing somewhat quickly, but uh, they produce live casino games via video for you know for, for casinos all over the world, and. Uh, I don't know if you all have followed this, but uh, in the last two weeks, all of the, you know, the, a lot of several Las Vegas casino and casino companies were hacked and they paid oh, yeah. tens of millions of dollars yeah. to get it. My, my brother-in-law lives in Las Vegas and he's, he sent me a very funny slash sad picture of, uh, of the giant marquee in front of the, uh, in front of the cosmopolitan uh, casino. And it had, and it had the, um, the Windows, the Microsoft Windows. Hey, do you want to restart your system? Right, like on the marquee, like you can't take, like, have to take the mouse over and hit, you know, and 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 hit refresh. So, so uh, these these companies are actually looking for ways to run gaming in a you know in a remote way that doesn't increase their own potential for you know vulnerability. And so. Evolution Gaming has done that. It's centralized and it is incredibly profitable for, for their customers. So the customers are, are, are delighted. And you look out at uh, you know, what, what they provide and it's really limited 
based on evolution's capacity to train dealers in the in this type of format to you know to to get the infrastructure set up and nobody's going after them i mean there are there is almost no one i mean you see these these small cap companies and they they say well yeah we're going to go and try and uh try and compete with with uh with evolution i'm like you're doomed right you're absolutely doomed because it's a it's a scale business and the bigger the scale gets the more profitable this this company becomes just before we finish up a thank you to our friends at vodafone business who have been with us all year and fair play to them they've been a great sponsor and a great fan to the program if you're a business owner in need of a leg up when it comes to your digital transformation get yourself over to vodafone v hub to book your appointment today find the link in our show notes for more details or just google vodafone v hub Right, uh, that's it for today's show and for the year 2023, lads. It's been a pleasure to have hosted Stock Club all year and thank you for everyone who's tuned in. Uh, remember, as always, if you want to get in touch, you can find us at on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet. Simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, tell your friends about us and leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you in 2024. Happy New Year's and the best to all of you, lads.